Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You're listening to All the Books, a weekly show of recommendations and enthusiasm regarding the week's new book releases. This is episode 259, and today we are talking about books being released on May 12th, 2020, and more. I'm Liberty Hardy, here with Vanessa Diaz, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. Hello, hello. Hola, friend. Welcome to May. We're here, somehow. Yes. It's happening. Yes. It's still, I don't know. <laughs> what? I don't know anything. <laughs> I, I mean, it's pretty amazing. Like, let's let's think about it for a second. You and I are literally about as far on either side of the country <laughs> as we can get. And we're communicating. <laughs> we are the Portland posse, yes. <laughs> From the two Portlands. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty wild, so... And we're both alive and we're functioning. Yeah. It's good. It's good. It's going to be great. You know, when people say Portland, almost everyone thinks of the West Coast, but actually your Portland is named after our Portland. So true story. Oh, for sure. Ours definitely came way later. <laughs> <laughs> like, but yeah, but it was like literally named for that city because they moved out there and they were like, yeah, Portland. Sure, sure. Um, so that's some nerdy main trivia for everyone today. We're going to talk about books. Uh, I'll give the little... Reminder that because of everything that's going on, um, pub dates are getting moved all the time. We are recording this on Thursday the 7th, and I remember last week I mentioned this, and even right up until the day of release, some dates are getting pushed. Uh, you know, I checked the whole big list last Monday, and then on Tuesday, some of them had been moved. So, you know, we're attempting to talk about books coming out today, and it's <laughs> fine, you know. In the scheme of things, not a big deal. And you're going to hear about great books, so that's something. But before we do that, we're going to hear from a sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Taming Seven is an epic and unforgettable love story in the international bestselling and TikTok phenomenon, The Boys of Tom and series from Chloe Walsh. So Tommen's cheekiest lad, Jared Gibsey Gibson, has always been a comedian, but inside he is haunted by events of the past and he uses humor to cope, hiding his true self from the world. Then you have Claire Biggs, who is the epitome of sunshine. She's always loved Gibsy, her brother's friend and her favorite neighbor. She also has always seen a side to him that no one else seems to notice, and she becomes determined to tame her wild-at-heart childhood best friend. So The Boys of Tom and Series is an internationally best-selling YA romance series that has taken TikTok by storm. It's perfect for readers looking for new adult slash crossover romance, dual point of views, friends to lovers, marathon worthy TikTok books, and angsty tearjerkers. Taming Seven is published today and it's the fifth book in the series. So make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Avid Reader Press. 
So this next book is a really fun sounding mashup of different genres. There's a little time travel, a little romance, a little spy thriller action going on. So in the near future, a civil servant is offered the salary of her dreams and is shortly afterward told what project she'll be working on. A recently established government ministry is gathering quote unquote expats from across history to establish whether time travel is feasible for the body, but also for the fabric of space time. This is an exquisitely original and feverishly fun fusion of genres and ideas. The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley asks, what does it mean to defy history when history is living in your house? Colleen Bradley's answer is a blazing, unforgettable testament to what we owe each other in a changing world. It kind of gives Outlander meets Cloud Atlas or If the Time Traveler's Wife was written by Sally Rooney or Colson Whitehead. Make sure to check out The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley. And thanks again to Avid Reader Press for sponsoring this episode. Okay, so I thought I would start with something just easy and delightful today for a change because everything I talk about is dark and horrible, even when there isn't a pandemic going on. (laughs) Uh, So my first pick today is A Deadly Inside Scoop, an ice cream parlor mystery from Abby Collette. This is the first in a new cozy mystery series. Uh, We've talked about cozy mysteries before, but if you don't know what they are, uh, they are usually lacking sex, violence, and swearing. Some people have a debate over whether a cozy mystery can be uh, investigated by someone who is an actual police officer or detective. Some people say cozy mysteries can only be investigated by amateur detectives like this one. But I don't know. I mean, in the scheme of things, I think I've said that like twice now already, like five minutes. I said that expression. (laughs) Sorry. Like Agatha Christie, like when you read her now, those aren't very violent or scary. Like you could almost think of those as cozy mysteries. Yet they are investigated by a private detective. So who knows? I've been watching a lot of Agatha Christie's recent adaptations. I haven't watched the two new like movies that went to the theaters, but Mm -hmm. I watched Ordeal by Innocence, which I thought was fantastic. I watched The Pale Horse, which I thought was kind of disappointing. And I watched The ABC Murders, which is my favorite Agatha Christie book. And I did not enjoy it at all. John Malkovich did not work for me as Hercule Poirot. He doesn't. Like, when I read the book when I was eight years old, there there is a murder in the book that scarred me for life. Like, it was so horrible. It terrified me and changed the way I behaved in movie theaters. And they don't even include it in the new adaptation. And for some reason, even though it scarred me horribly, I wanted to see it on the screen. I don't know why. But um, there is like a, mur- a murder in a movie theater in the book and they didn't they didn't use it. I was like, what's happening here? All right. So back to this book that <laughs> I've gotten away from. Uh, it is a deadly inside scoop. And much like the Noodle Shop Mysteries, which is another great new cozy mystery series uh, by Vivian Chien, uh, it is about a woman who returns home to her roots, to her family's restaurant. Uh, Bronwyn Cruz, in this case, uh, has been away at college. She's gotten an MBA in marketing. And she has now returned to her family's ice cream parlor in Ohio. Her grandparents opened it They ran it for a long time. Her grandmother came up with many of the recipes for the ice cream. And now her grandfather wants her to be the manager. So she returns to Ohio and she's pretty excited. It's not what she went to school for, but she's still pretty excited. You know, it's in the family and it makes her happy to be there. Um, She does a lot of revamping. She, She does a lot of construction to the place. And... Unfortunately, because of all the work that she's having done, Wynn, which is like short for Bronwyn, that's what they call her, Wynn, 
the work takes a lot longer, as construction often does, uh, and they miss the summer season, like when everybody wants ice cream. So now they have to wait until the fall for the place to open. And on the first day that she is supposed to open, there is a snowstorm. And no one comes in for ice cream during a snowstorm. Although I will say that, like, I always want ice cream in the winter. I have no idea why. But in this case, nobody goes inside. Uh, so now they're was a stranger that Wynne had met who was walking around earlier looking for a lost puppy. And that is important because now on this day that there is a snowstorm, she decides to go out and get some snow to make ice cream, and she meets the stranger again. Only this time, he's dead. He's dead. And that's bad. And what it turns out is that the man that she finds is a con man. He didn't really lose a puppy. Um, he was a con man who had a bone to pick with Wynne's family. And now Wynne's father, who is a doctor, is the main suspect in his murder. So now Wynne has to work to clear his name and also keep the parlor afloat, uh, you know, having opened in the fall with cold weather and all these bills for construction. And so she's working to keep the place afloat. Or should I say she's working to keep the place a root beer afloat? <laughs> oh, that's so bad. And so she's going to have to, like, figure out who the killer is. So it's just fun and light. And there are actual recipes in the back of this book. Um, I noticed for the first time, I had never noticed this before, maybe, I don't know, I just don't pay attention. But there's a thing at the beginning that says, like, Penguin Random House is not responsible for how these recipes turn out, basically. I'm paraphrasing. But it's, like, not responsible for how these recipes turn out or any adverse effects that you might experience in making these recipes, which I thought was interesting. But I guess they have to, like, cover themselves. So there are recipes in the back, and I'm looking forward to a second book. You know, I thought it was fun. I found her employee to be a bit annoying, but that's okay. There are real-life annoying people. And so I hope there's a second book. And I hope I hope someone has their heart removed with a spoon. Why a spoon? Because it'll hurt more. This book is a deadly inside scoop, Ice Cream Parlor Mystery by Abby Collette. Okay, I had myself on mute for a lot of that so as not to accost all y'all with my, like, cackly laughter. But that was excellent. Thank you. <laughs> and I'm dying at the fact, I too am a fellow Agatha Christie fangirl, and I was totally expecting what you were going to say about ABC murders. But in my head, I'm like, oh yeah, I read that when I was like 12 or 13, and it scarred me for life. And here comes Liberty with a, I was eight. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I wouldn't have ever seen a movie in a theater again. Like, okay, well, this is not going to happen. But anyway, that yep. was enjoyable for me. Yeah, after I read that book, I, like, had to sit in the very last row of the movie theater with my back to a wall and, like, to this day, still sit like that in a movie theater. <laughs> oh, that was so great. <laughs> well, I'm going to pivot now. Uh, my, my pick is, or my first pick, is Stealing Thunder by Alina Boyden. Uh, there are trigger warnings in this book for physical abuse and anti-trans language. I'm not going to mention any of it, I don't think, but just so you know, it's there. So when the book opens, we meet Razia Khan, she and her sister, she's not really her sister, she's just kind of like her best friend who she sees as a sister. They are entertainers, they're dancers, they've been hired to entertain for one of the wealthiest men in the city. They live on a dira, which is like a like a camp or a settlement in uh, Bikampur. And the community that these girls live in is the Hijras. I hope I'm saying that correctly, which are a real centuries old community of people who've been assigned male at birth. And now they have trans feminine gender identities. And they choose to live together for both safety and then also just camaraderie. So when we meet 
Razia, she is living in, well, you know, amongst the Hijras in this Dira. Again, she is a dancer. That's what she does. And that's basically her daytime gig. She dances at the Dira. And then by night, she is that Dira's like most profitable thief because the price that she pays to live in this Dira and have her identity kept a secret is that the, her guru basically insists that she, you know, go out and do her bidding and that she do all of this thievery and all the girls in this era do the same thing but she's by far like the best at it her secret is that razia was born and raised in the very powerful kingdom of dariustan and was raised to be the crown prince of nizam which is actually sorry nizam is the name of the kingdom in this uh, country of dariustan and when she revealed to her father who she really was meaning that she, you know she had the soul of a girl of a woman her father unleashed the Fury, very, you know, hateful man. And essentially, in order to live life on her terms, Razia chose to run away, abandon, you know, her title and all of the trappings that come with it. And that's how she came to live with this community of the of Hidras. And so it's very important that her identity is kept a secret, because if her father finds out that she's continuing to, you know, quote unquote, shame him in this way, he will send assassins to come kill her. So not just come get her, but to, to, to do away with her, to kill her. So again, flashing to the, you know, the where we meet her, she's getting ready to perform for some super uber wealthy guy who is a customer and doing so changes her life completely because when she meets this man, she by way of him also meets this stunningly beautiful man who she then finds out is the prince of Bikampur. So like the local um, area that she's in. And it's you know, love at first sight for her. She hears angels singing in the background as soon as she sees him. He's super good looking and he seems interesting and interested in her too, like conversationally, not just for her physicality. But the added wrinkle here, in addition to the fact that, you know, her identity is already such a huge weight and a secret and she that she willingly chooses to keep a secret because it means getting to live life, you know, on her terms. But it is obviously a huge threat that she has to think about all the time is that this prince has been specifically sent here to this Dira to find out who has been stealing from its wealthy citizens. <laughs> so, And obviously the answer is, hey, me, hi, I'm the person, it's it's me, it is I. So this chance meeting changes, again, Razia's life forever. There's a lot of conflicts of interest here, as I'm sure you can imagine, but she finds herself quickly embroiled in this big political war that will eventually bring her face to face with her father. It was a really fun book. It's it's a it's a work of fantasy in case you didn't pick up on some of that. And the prince is so sweet and good that uh, I read a review somewhere that said like, oh, this made me roll my eyes a lot, but in a good way. And like, yeah, I kind of get that. <laughs> it was kind of eye-rollingly sweet at times, um, but also, you know, harrowing at others for what I imagine are some pretty obvious reasons. The author writes a really nice forward at the beginning that, you know, talks about how she grew up in a really conservative household in Texas. And she grew up with that fear that if, you know, if I reveal to people that I am a woman, that I was born this this way, that this is who I really am, that she would be abandoned by the people that loved her most. So she remembers turning, as so many, you know, of us readers have done, to fantasy novels, like for company and destruction and escapism. But, you know, there just wasn't room in fantasy novels, not only for just a trans woman character, period, but, you know, let alone a trans woman protagonist. And so she set out to write this book thinking that, like, only she and her mom would ever read it and it would never be published. And now that it has, obviously, it's this, like, really nice redemptive arc for her, which I, I really appreciated. So, yeah, that is – it was a really fun book. I loved it. And, yes, I do love the trans representation, too. I think that's super important. So that is Stealing Thunder by Alina Boyden. Okay. I'm going to change speeds here with a nonfiction book. 
I feel like I haven't read a lot of nonfiction this year, but I have two this this time around, so I'm excited. This next one is Enemy of All Mankind, a true story of piracy, power, and history's first global manhunt by Stephen Johnson. Stephen Johnson has done a couple of works of nonfiction, like great works of nonfiction, including The Ghost Map, which is a book many people are probably reading right now, which is about the 1854 cholera outbreak in London, um, which came out in like 2006, but I'm sure a lot of people are picking it up right now. He's great at nonfiction, and it's so compelling. Uh, and this is the story of Henry Every. I'm saying every, like like the word, like E-V-E-R-Y. Uh, he was a 17th century pirate who was certainly not nearly as scary or horrible as the rumors that were told about him. But he was quite a nuisance to the British government. They offered an enormous sum of money for anyone who could capture him dead or alive. And so in this story, we hear about all his adventures. And what Johnson does is tie every story uh, in this one specific incident that took place in with the emergence of the East India Company and how Every's attack on an Indian treasure ship changed the global economy. Now, Henry Every did not attack this Indian treasure ship thinking, haha, I will forever change the global economy. Arr, I think is, is what they say. Um, he just was, you know, being a pirate. Uh, but Johnson makes the argument that because of what he did, uh, first of all, like the East India Company, I didn't know much about them. Like even reading that David Mitchell book, I didn't know anything about the East India Company. But they were basically like a company that came in and seized parts of countries uh, and started international capitalism. And this is showing like the ramifications that the attack on that one ship had on the global economy, even today, like how that started all of that. I mean, it's wildly interesting. I don't think, I think that the subtitle is a little misleading. I mean, it is a true story of piracy power in the history's first global manhunt, but that is not like the main thing going on here, but it wouldn't be as exciting if it was like, um, you know, the true story of piracy and the changing of the global economy. It wouldn't sound like as exciting. Um, but I was fascinated by the whole thing. Uh, a big fan of pirates lately. I feel like everything is having its moment right now. Pirates, zombies, vampires, you know, raccoons, everything. Uh, so I I'm a big, but like right now, pirates are, are super cool to me. Uh, so I loved this book. It is Enemy of All Mankind, A True Story of Piracy, Power, and History's First Global Manhunt by Stephen Johnson. It is still so wild to me when I go through and learn history, which I used to hate when I was a kid, to be like, really, the like history of the world is just people living on their land and being like, no, I want that one, and then going and getting it and in perpetuity. Yeah. <laughs> it's wild. Okay, so speaking of countries with complicated histories, my next book is The Ant Hill by Juliana, Pache or Juliana Pacheco. I always want to throw my accent on stuff. So after a, I think, 20-year absence, our main character what would have been Carolina, but she goes by Lena, is returning to Medellin, Colombia for the first time. So she grew up or at least spent the first eight years or so of her life there. And then her mother died quite violently. I will let you figure that out how. And her dad, who is English, so she's half English, half Colombian, 
decides that it is time to send her off to England and to enroll her in a boarding school to just like ship her off, get her away from from all the, you know, madness, if you will. So she does and she lives her life in England and essentially has no real connection to Colombia after that. She, you know, finishes boarding school, goes off to uni and she's working and just about, I think, finishing her PhD when she just realizes she doesn't know what to do with her life. She was in theory, supposed to try being a teacher, and she did it kind of, like, not all the way interestedly, and it's quite evident because all the reviews that come back from her teaching experience are like, ah, this teacher didn't know what she was doing. She's, like, making it up as she went. So she's just sort of bumbling and feeling a little bit of malaise and decides that it is time to go back to Medellin and reconnect and search for a bit of atonement, I guess we could say. Mm Mm-hmm. So she gets there and she, the whole plan, it's kind of a vague plan, but still a plan, is she's going to volunteer at this community center in a very, very poor neighborhood in Medellin. That community center is run by Matias, who she remembers as being like her closest childhood friend. So she's like, I'm going to go, I'm going to do a good thing, I'm going to reconnect with my buddy, it's going to be great, I'm going to feel like authentically Colombian, because she's struggled for quite some time with like, can I even call myself Colombian? I have like no connection to it anymore, I haven't been back since I was a kid, etc., etc. And so that's, you know, she gets there with a one-way ticket and is like, I'm just going to make this work. But eh, things go a little, little differently. She gets picked up by this cab driver. She immediately, or or a, a driver, I should say, and she sees him and she's like, Matias? And he's like, yeah, no, my name is Lalo. Don't worry, I've got you. Like, I'll take you into the city. So he does and takes her to like, the community center is called the Ant Hill, but he claims, he's like, oh, you know, Karate, I can't find my keys. Um, let's go grab you like a bite to eat. And they have a long conversation that towards the end feels a little bit like an interrogation. And she's starting to feel a teeny bit uneasy. Turns out, and this is all in the beginning, so now this is a spoiler, essentially, that the whole time it was it was actually Matias who she was talking to. But he just looks very different. And it's a very, you know, changed person. And he, I think, is sort of, you know, questioning, like, what, what are you here? Like, what are you trying to accomplish? And that is where things kind of get wild you know she quickly discovers that matias has changed and of course you know who wouldn't it's 20 years like we all hopefully are a little different 20 years down the line than we were back then but he is a very guarded man and just doesn't seem interested in kind of reliving the past you're walking down memory lane the way she does and their lives have just obviously turned out very very differently like she was living a pretty all things considered cush life you know she did lose her mom which is tragic but other than that just got the heck out of dodge and has been living this life across the pond. Whereas Medellin, and this is obviously very true in you know the real world, is a city with a complicated past. It's, you know, at one point and for decades at least, I don't know that it that this still is the case, but it had one of the highest murder rates in the world. It's just been kind of caught at the center of conflicts between guerrilla forces and the government-backed paramilitary. There was, you know, the Pablo Escobar era with just crime and drugs and it's it's it was a city that was just viewed as extremely dangerous and was dangerous. I mean citizens of, of Medellin were for a very long time essentially under siege in their own homes. It was it was a difficult place to be, as is a lot of Latin America for complicated reasons that often have to do more with a you know American and or other involvement, more so than we like to acknowledge. This book stares all of that in the face. But, you know, metaphorically, the issue here is that as Lena is, again, trying to, like, figure out where her place is and, like, did I make the wrong choice? Should I even be here? Is this a good idea? 
strange things start to happen at this community center. There is like super violent scratching inside the closet door in the leg room that she's staying in. The children are all drawing some real unsettling pictures that are like, uh, okay, yeah, that's nice. Great. But they're, they're super not nice. And then they're keep, there's all these mysterious sightings of this small, like very gray, dull looking and kind of like dirty boy with pointy teeth. And I will let you go from there. <laughs> um, again, I think the book is rife with metaphors that are not too hard to glean into. And and this is definitely one of those books, like when you hear someone say like, oh, I want to read a book where the city is a character. Medellin is a living, breathing character in this book. And I've had it as a goal of myself to read more books that are set in Latin America, but that's not like just, you know, Mexico. And so this was across that off while also adding a little bit of paranormal, <laughs> like very satirical horror, but still horror nonetheless. I'm a bit of a weenie and I could still handle it. So it's not something that you won't be able to take, but I, I don't know. I, I thought it was brilliant. I really, really enjoyed it. And I love that it does paint, again, the city, the issues that places like Medellin have are not by any means one dimensional and should be studied very critically. So that was The Ant Hill by Juliana Pacheco. Okay. My next pick is Superman Smashes the Clan by Jean Luen Yang and Guruhiru, who I thought was just like some one named superstar illustrator, you know, like one name like Madonna or Prince, but turns out to be an entire Japanese animation team. Um, so they go by Guruhiru. And first of all, I have a confession. I kind of find superheroes a bit boring, especially Superman. Um, I do love All-Star Superman, which was that Grant Morrison comic that came out a while ago, but for the most part, it drives me crazy to no end that people don't recognize Superman. <laughs> I don't... I know that's the whole point of the story, but I can't help it. I'm just like, he's just wearing glasses. He's just wearing glasses. It drives me insane. So I've not read a lot of Superman, but... Jean Luen Yang, I love his books. I just read Dragon Hoops, which I talked about a few months ago or a few weeks ago, uh, which I loved. And so, of course, I was going to read this. And it's so good. It's about the Lees. They're a Chinese-American family. It's 1946 in the United States. And it takes place in Metropolis, which is where Superman takes place. Tommy and Roberta Lee are brother and sister. Their father, Dr. Lee, has taken a new position with the health department, which means that they get to move to Metropolis, which means that they get to be near Superman, where all the action is. And in this comic, like, you're just out going about your day and you see a blue streak fly over your head. And you're like, oh, yeah, that's Superman, like, doing his thing. It's just very common sighting. Um, but they're excited because they haven't spent any time around Superman. And he's obviously the celebrity of the city. Um, they move into their new home. Uh, they're right near Jimmy Olsen, who is the... Um, I don't actually remember what his position is at the Daily Planet, but he works for the Daily Planet where Clark Kent works. He... Uh, asks Tommy to join their baseball team, which he does, and he makes a lot of friends and he becomes very popular. Roberta, meanwhile, is having a hard time fitting in. She's always felt like kind of an outcast. She gets teased a lot and she feels like a bit of a weirdo. So she's having a harder time, especially in the face of her brother becoming so popular. The book explains like the microaggressions and then sometimes just like the blatant racism that the Lees experience. I'm not going to repeat any of it here, but you know, it's 1946, so they're hearing a lot of, like, just really stupid things from neighbors who think, like, they're just saying, like, well-meaning things and then just flat-out horrible stuff from kids in the neighborhood. Um, and speaking of horrible stuff, it turns out that the Ku Klux Klan has decided that Metropolis would be a good place 
to stir up trouble. I don't know why, because that's where Superman lives, but hey, it's the clan. Uh, so they decide to cause some problems. They kidnap Tommy and attack the Daily Planet. And Roberta, much to her surprise, ends up teaming up with Superman because she has great deduction skills. She's a little detective. Um, she teams up with Superman to find Tommy and bring down the clan. It's so much fun. I, it says it's like for middle grade, but I got more of a YA vibe. And some other things I read said it was YA. I don't know. I think it's for everyone. I thought it was great. I loved the illustrations. They have this very like sort of soft quality to them, even though there's like fight scenes and stuff. I just really enjoyed the illustrations. I thought the whole thing was really fun. So that is Superman Smashes the Clan by Jean Luen Yang and illustrated by Guruhiru, the Japanese illustration team. And okay, that takes us to our next sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Harper Muse, publisher of Troubled Waters. Troubled Waters is an intimate portrait of two generations, a granddaughter and a grandmother, coming to terms with what it means to be family, black women, and alive in a world on fire. In heartfelt lyrical prose, Mary Inez Hegler weaves an unforgettable story of the climate crisis, black resistance, and the enduring power of family. Narrated by Janice Abbott-Pratt and written by climate justice writer Mary Anise Hegler, the Troubled Waters audiobook is available everywhere May 7th. It follows Corinne as she plans to stage a dramatic act of resistance and peels back the scabs of her family wounds and puts her safety in jeopardy. Both grandmother and granddaughter must bring their unspoken secrets into light to find a path to healing. Known for her essays that dissect and interrogate the climate crisis, drawing heavily on her personal experience as a black woman with deep roots in the South, Mary Inez Hegler brings us her first work of fiction titled Troubled Waters. Make sure to pick it up. Thanks again to Harper Muse, publisher of Troubled Waters, for sponsoring this episode. <laughs> Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of The Familiar by Lee Bardugo. This is one I'm actually super excited about. I liked Lee Bardugo's other adult fantasy books, and so I'm really looking forward to this one. It's set in the Spanish Golden Age during a time of high stakes political intrigue and glittering wealth. It follows Luzia, a servant in the household of an impoverished Spanish nobleman who reveals a talent for little miracles. Her social climbing mistress demands Luzia use her gifts to win over Madrid's most powerful players, but what begins as simple amusement takes a dangerous turn. Luzia will need to use every bit of her wit and will to survive, even the help of Guillén Santangel, an immortal familiar whose own secrets could prove deadly for them both. So The Familiar by Lee Bardugo is on sale now. And like I said, it's a must read of the season. It's perfect for anyone who loves history, a little bit of magic, a lot of danger. You can get your copy now at LeeBardugoTheFamiliar.com. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of The Familiar by Lee Bardugo for sponsoring this episode. All right, Vanessa, what do you have for us next? My next pick today is a children's Bible by Lydia Millet. And don't let the title deceive you. <laughs> I mean, it, let, me, let me tell you about the book. <laughs> so the main, well, one of the main characters, a narrator, is Evie. And she is one of a group of kids and teenagers that are, they're just a whole bunch of ages. There's like kids, like prepubescent age, all the way up to, you know, 17, you know, knocking on adulthood. And they are spending a summer with their parents at this, like, shishi lakeside rental mansion. 
their parents are the, you know, quote unquote, artsy and educated types. And it is all not going well. It is like swelteringly hot. And the kids are just fed up with their parents. Actually, you know, I'm wondering if it was even hotter if I just added that part in for myself. <laughs> because this just has like a really stifling feeling. But the kids, again, are super upset with their parents because their parents are essentially just spending their days like in a drug and alcohol induced stupor. Their sex, drugs, alcohol, like the whole nine. And they, every time the kids decide to, you know, complain or, or say anything about the fact that this is just not in any way enjoyable for them, they kind of get the like, yeah, 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 go play outside. Like mommy needs her juice. So again, they're feeling a combination of neglected and suffocated when this giant storm descends on like the estate and, you know, the area where it's in. It's a big deal. I mean, it is like the most destructive storm. It's it's massive. It's not just like a little bit of light rain. And the kids essentially, and the ringleader being Eve, they decide to run away. Like they don't want to be in the house and they're going to find some sort of escape. Real good idea to go outside in the middle of a terrible storm. So she leads the younger ones and the older, older kids and her lead the younger ones into just chaos outside eventually deciding to kind of find like a refuge in an abandoned i think farm like or at a farm and that is when things again torrential storm big stuff happening and they start to realize that one of the younger kids is toting a here comes the title children's bible with him and they're realizing that some of the stuff that's happening to them seems a little familiar and maybe coming from the pages of that bible it gets pretty pretty some of the metaphors are a little shaky i will say but some of them make more sense the real reason i'm recommending the book though and what i loved about it is that picking books full of metaphors this week but it is a pretty like slap you in the face metaphor about climate change and specifically how the you know inaction and or just missteps and, and bad behaviors of like the older generation are literally being tossed into the hands of their children and <laughs> like the mistakes that we're making now are going to be ones that you know we don't necessarily see the the consequences of so much as our children and grandchildren etc it was interestingly done. Like, I, again, I, the Bible thing, I was at first a little bit nah, to read about because sometimes stuff with religion is like not always my bag, depending on how it's presented. But this was, was pretty interesting. There is literally the scene where this the, one of the younger kids, Noah, like tries to start collecting animals because he's like, look, there's a storm outside. And in this book I'm holding, it says that you should round up the animals and put them on a boat. And that's how we're all going to survive. And <laughs> again, some of the metaphors are well, maybe not as solid, but some, some of them did make me either chuckle and or think. So again, if, if for no other reason that, again, that like big background metaphor about climate change was something that made this a really inventive and interesting read that I would love to put in a lot of people's hands. <laughs> so if you're looking for something like that, definitely check it out. That's A Children's Bible by Lydia Millett. I absolutely love her. Like, she's so, so great. And I'm so excited. Like, I actually am a little annoyed at myself because I missed the title when I was writing down things I was going to read for the show. And then you snagged it. And I was like, oh. I super thought you were going to grab it. And when I saw it wasn't on there, I was like, I'm just going to type my name next to this and walk away like Homer in that garden thing. Like, it's fine. <laughs> and it, it worked. But it was my first time reading her. I, I really loved it. Oh, she has so many amazing books. So many books out now. Like, I was thinking, like, oh, she has, like, two or three. No, I was just looking. She has, like, Lydia Millet has, like, I don't know, nine or ten now. It just seems impossible. But she's so wonderful and strange, and I love her. Speaking of books I love, I'm going to talk about my last book, which is The Shapeless Unease, A Year of Not Sleeping by Samantha Harvey. 
I'm a big fan of Samantha Harvey's novels. She writes these very slim, just provocative um, stream of consciousness kind of novels, usually. Um, And this one is a memoir. Um, First of all, you know how I hate sleep. I've told you how I hate sleep. My whole life I've fought with sleep because the less I sleep, the more I can read. And for most of my life, the doctor was like, if you don't sleep, you're going to die. And I'm going to be, and I'm like, I'm totally fine. You know, like, I'm going to be fine. And he would tell me this all the time. And I'd be like, I'm invincible. And he'd be like, you're a loony. But no. So like last year, then, as I've mentioned, I had a real problem with sleeping where I didn't sleep for several days. And it's amazing what happens to you when you go without it. And so I've been trying to change my sleep patterns, much to the detriment of my reading habits. And I still fight it. Like, I refuse to just go get in bed and go to sleep. I have to, like, be doing something like reading or watching TV and, and, like, fall asleep. Like, I hate sleep. But, like, I've been sleeping uh, pretty well the last few weeks until, like, a couple of nights ago. All of a sudden, I haven't been sleeping again. And I'll tell you how I know that it's a problem because I was watching um, Ordeal by Innocence in the middle of the night because I couldn't sleep, which is the Agatha Christie adaptation. And very early on, I was like, I totally know who the killer is. I am so smart. And I was really chuffed that when we got to the end of the show, I was correct about who the killer was, not even remembering until the next day that I have read that book three times. Just like, didn't get any sleep. Totally thought I was a genius. So that's why sleep is important, people. So talking about this book, (laughs) this is about how in 2016, Harvey stopped sleeping. She stopped being able to sleep and she had no idea why. She examined, you know, what could have changed in her life that caused this and then moved on to getting treatment for it. Uh, She went to therapy. She changed her diet. She tried medication. She tried changing her living arrangements. And she just like was not sleeping. And it's hard when you don't sleep. It It takes a terrible toll on your body. You know, they say everyone should get eight hours of sleep a night. I certainly do not, but I definitely get more than I used to, uh, and I already feel better just doing that. Um, and so it was very hard for her, like, and so she wrote because that's what she does. So she wrote poetry and flash flash fiction into this memoir about what it is like to be deprived of sleep and how that affects you, and like the anxiety that she experienced because she wasn't sleeping and other disorders that came with it. And it's just like this stream of consciousness about not being able to sleep. I don't think it would be to everyone's liking. Um, she does have a very specific writing style. Uh, if you like Rebecca Solnit, I think this would be a good book for you, or Kate Zambrino, who is just, uh, I love her so much. I just found it so interesting. So it is The Shapeless Unease, A Year of Not Sleeping by Samantha Harvey. Ooh, I am a total insomniac or recovering one anyway. And yeah, I can tell you some pretty ridiculous stories about stuff that I have done when I have not slept, including like... <laughs> it's amazing. I've gotten up in the morning and found evidence in the kitchen that I was clearly trying to cook something and been like, what on earth? Like it's, they say it's worse than being drunk. And like, I totally get why. Like, cause you literally, I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I, I just would be loopy. Thankfully that's mostly under control these days. Yeah. Ooh. I don't remember the whole like first week that the kittens were at the house because I refused to go to sleep <laughs> because I was worried something was going to happen to them. And now I don't even remember like staying awake worrying about something happening to them i don't remember it every all. morning you're like hey i have two cats like cool yeah oh love it okay well i will wrap it up here with my last pick which is dear universe by florence gonsalves this was one of the like most well fun is the wrong word but like real pieces of ya that i've read in a while and that's not a diss on ya because i really love ya but i tend to trend towards the more like fantasy side of ya versus just contemporary 
So Dear Universe is the story of Chamomile Miles. I love that her name is Chamomile because <laughs> I'm a big tea person, but she goes by Cam. And she is facing down her senior year. It's, I think, January when the book opens. And I want to say the first chapter is called, like, January, uh, days left till prom, a gajillion. Like, clearly prom is, like, the thing that everybody is thinking about. She has a boyfriend who she's, like, super in love with. <laughs> and so her and all her friends are heading to go like try on dresses at this like discount, I think, uh, shop. And all they can talk about is, you know, have you been asked to prom? And like, how did you get asked to prom? Which is how I knew I was definitely looking at like a piece of contemporary way, because that definitely was not a thing when I was growing up. And now the promposal thing like continues to like baffle me. Not not that I'm like talking smack about it. It's just it's wild. Like before I was like, hey, you want to go to prom? And now it's like, let me fly this helicopter. And then a camel is going to come down from the sky and it's going to speak French and like ask you if you want to be my girlfriend and go to prom it's it's wild that's the internet is full of those videos as i'm sure you all know so they're all talking about that like how are you gonna get asked and oh my gosh and cam is excited when she gets a text from her boyfriend and says like hey i have a surprise for you like come on over and so everybody's like squeeze gonna ask you oh my god and so they all you know she, she basically is like oh gotta go like yeah there's a secret there's a surprise waiting for me like i bet you it's that so she goes over there and she's actually in her head thinking it's like one of two things. Either he is finally going to ask her to prom or is he maybe going to try to initiate sexy times, which is like a thing they have not quite done in their relationship yet. She gets there, realizes that his family is there, his two moms, and I think maybe other members of the family, if not, if they're not there, then they're about to be. And he is, her boyfriend is sitting there in, I think, a, like a tux or a suit or like trying one on. And she's like, oh, what are you, you know, doing? And he's like, I, so the big surprise is that he got into the college that he wanted to get into. And I don't even remember if they name it, but it's like a big deal. It's university. It is not local. And it's like a huge, he's, he's super excited. He can't wait. And so she's sitting there a little bit like, oh, so that's a surprise. Cool. And like, he's like, yeah, and the whole family's coming over. Like, you have to celebrate with us. And she's sort of feeling a little, like some type of way she isn't being 100% upfront with her friends or her boyfriend about the fact that she hasn't even really finished her college applications and she has very little time to do so. Like that window is quickly closing. All her friends are also consumed with like talk of this volunteer trip in Nicaragua. She's also kind of skirting that conversation because you have to have finished your college applications to go on this trip and like she hasn't done that either. So she's got the boy issues, the friend issues. She's trying to figure out what she's going to like do with her life you know, balancing all of like the regular teenager in, you know, high school stuff. And then there's her home life, which is such a stark contrast. Her father is battling a terminal illness. I think it's Parkinson's, if I remember correctly. And so her life, you know, her dad, who was once this like amazing, still is amazing, but this very active and like vibrant person is slowly deteriorating, you know, on account of this disease. And so one of the like very first scenes in the book is of her basically telling her parents like, hey, I'm going over to my boyfriend's house, like BRB. And they they try to call her back and like ask her about it. And she, she walks into the bathroom where she clearly hears like their voices coming from and is immediately like struck by the smell of urine. She's like, oh my God, why did you guys, did you guys tell me? Like her dad is sitting there like on the toilet, I believe. And the mom is like trying to help him. Like he, he's lost enough control over his limbs that she, you know, he, he relies on her, his wife, Cam's mom for assistance to live most of his life. And so the book is in so many ways just kind of about this. Like it's a very real portrayal of to go through like really teenagery things in this current like time and age. 
what it's like to stare down like the end of high school and go into this huge like transitional period in your life and trying to kind of pretend that you know what you want to do, but really not having any freaking clue. And then with that juxtaposition of a thing, it's very real. And it's not necessarily always the, you know, illness of a parent that we're dealing with. But for so many people, there's just like, you know, complicated home issues that you're also trying to figure out and make your way through in addition to all the, you know, trappings of just being a teenager, which are obviously formidable, like in and of themselves. And then in the middle of all this, she ends up meeting this other guy. His name is, I think, Brendan. He is, he's a hospital volunteer. He's super kind of absurd. He has a man bun. He wears like a tutu to cheer people up. And he sort of just helps her realize that there might be a world between the two in which she currently travels. And there might be a whole new lease on life or like way of looking at life that she's you know previously done before. What I loved about it, again, I've kind of already hinted at, is that it just seems like a very real portrayal. The language is funny and also just feels very much like what, <laughs> to sound like a total old person, like the youth <laughs> sound like these days. And the struggles that she goes through in her relationship and with her friends. It's just, it's real. Like the, the communications that happen, the insecurities, the like, you could just fix this if you maybe said this thing out loud, but the reality is a lot of that kind of thing really does happen in, you know, real life. And just watching a person try to figure themselves out just felt very real and poignant. And it also just feels like a good appropriate novel for the time of year. I know that the you know end of high school is looking really, really different in school year in general for most kids across this country because of the Rona and the pandemic. But, you know, regardless of what that school year looked like as far as reporting to a classroom every day, it is still, you know, graduation season and just a time of, of change and transition for a lot of, of young kids. And I think this book could be a good one for someone that's looking to reading something relatable about not knowing what the future holds, but that it's going to be okay in the end. So yeah, that was really great. It's called Dear Universe by Florence Gonzalez. Okay, those are our new books. What are you going to read next? I'm so excited. I'm finally going to read Mexican Gothic by Celia Moreno-Garcia. Oh, it's so pretty. I feel like we've been excited about that at Book Riot for so many months now. We have. It's still not even out yet. Nope. (laughs) (laughs) I'm excited because I got my hands on a copy. Well, I should say a digital copy. I got my computer on a copy of The Echo Wife by Sarah Gailey, which... (gasps) sounds awesome it's about a scientist named evelyn who finds out that her husband is having an affair which is terrible in itself but to put some lemon juice in the paper cut he's having an affair with a genetically cloned replica that evelyn made of herself in her lab oh word yeah she's not happy about that bad things are gonna happen but it just sounds awesome so i'm excited sarah gailey man they are on a roll yes I think they had four books out this year, or maybe so. ca- maybe three, and then this one's coming in February, so they're cranking them out. It's amazing. And that's it for today. Thank you to our listeners. Thank you to our sponsors. You can drop us a line at all the books at bookriot.com and uh, tell me about my terrible puns and my Prince of Thieves reference. Um, <laughs> you can find us online. Uh, we hang out on Instagram. I am Franzen Comes Alive. Vanessa is Buenos Dias SD. And if you want to give us a treat, you can go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating or review. It helps other book lovers to find us. And as much as we would love to tell you about more books today, we just don't have the time, but you can read about more titles out now in the show notes at bookriot.com slash all the books, as well as find a link to our weekly new books newsletter. And in the meantime, happy reading.